Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome everyone to our second Legal Hour with Tom and Carlos. Really excited to continue this thread with you, Tom. I know there's a lot of wisdom in there and definitely want to get it out. So welcome again. Great. No, it's great to be here. Um, excited for this, you know, second second edition, uh, second chapter, as it were. Well, probably many second to come. chapter of many more, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's so much stuff to cover, and uh, and as for those of you that haven't watched episode one, uh, Tom's background is as a, a lawyer, and so we're diving in into some of his experience to to cover some of the topics we didn't cover. In the first episode, we covered commercial terms and why they matter more than the structure of your financing. So we figured for episode two, we talk about structures since a lot of people ask those questions. The typical questions that we might get at times are like, is a convertible better than an ASA or a safe? Or when should I take equity rounds? And so the focus of this episode really is to talk about that and just define it. And then we'll, we'll have plenty of future episodes to go into more details about those terms. So as I said, this one is entirely around structures. So just to help bookend the conversation, there is generally two categories of structures. On the one hand, there is share purchase agreements or rather equity share purchases. And on the other hand, there are commercial contracts. Now within commercial contracts, there is a variety and you've heard several of them like ASA, SAFE, uh, convertible equities, convertible notes. They all fit under that category. And we're going to walk through why there is this bookend. But before we do that, we're going to cover probably one of the more important things that affect both of them, which is the jurisdiction of choice that you not only incorporate in, but in which you take your investment from. So, Tom, let's kick off with jurisdictions and why they matter. Yeah, no, I mean, jurisdictions is if you were a kind of fly on the wall in the seat camp office, sometimes you'll, you'll hear you'll hear us get quite heated about um, sometimes discussing jurisdictions because it can cause a bit of a pain for us as, as investors at, at times. Um, and so, I mean, I guess, you know, why it matters is where, where you set up your company, where you decide to incorporate is, is usually the thing. And so set up a legal structure, which is the thing which is going to enter into contracts for you, employ people, do all that kind of stuff. It's, you know, likely that's going to be the kind of governing law, which, which um, the, the company has to comply with. And so because of that, there are differences between different countries. And so, you know, when, whilst we're, we're based obviously in the UK, Seacamp, so we see probably, you know, at least over half of our companies or probably actually a higher proportion um, are incorporated in the UK. And then we also invest obviously throughout Europe. And so we do see companies which are incorporated in Germany or incorporated in other jurisdictions. And then also a large proportion of our portfolio ends up over in the US. And, that might mean that they start with the U.S. incorporation and, and and privy to those laws, or whether they actually end up doing something called a flip, where they might be in one jurisdiction and they change to usually the, the U.S. Um, and that might be for a financing round. So, so why is this why is this all matter? I guess is that you know the big question is that that those rules by which the company has to comply will be dependent on that jurisdiction. So, it, to, to give some examples, I think whilst you know. We love Germany, um, and you know we're, we've backed some fantastic companies there, and uh, some wonderful founders, and yeah, you know, particularly big fan of Berlin, great, great city. As a place to set up a company, 
in terms of the you know the rules which that company has to go through um it's it's pretty archaic really i mean the the uh, there's a requirement if you're a company in germany to get a lot of things kind of what if you're if you're taking international money get things notarized which can add time so that means that you know someone has to come around and prove that the person who's signing is the person they are there's also and yeah, we just I, did one of those right now yeah, where yeah. i had we had to require a courier to get stuff signed so and yeah so totally it's a it's a it's a kind of crazy thing and i think i think i mean i'm no expert on general law i mean like carl said you know qualified as a as a uk lawyer um like english and england and wales law but that um that some of the things in germany is i think that at the closing of the financing at some point the whole document has to be read out so you know, we'll, we'll come on to the, some of the documents which are involved in financing later when we start talking about structures. But Tom, are, you, are you saying are you saying that literally somebody is reading this out? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I mean, I've never been to one of these things because what what often happens is we'll sign like a power of attorney so that someone can kind of be there on our behalf um, as part of this kind of financing round. But to cut a long story short, if if it's if it's if it's German law, you you are looking at um, whilst it's a super sophisticated economy obviously and, and you know there's some fantastic advisors there there is some steps which are going to probably take a little bit longer and are potentially going to be something which it's not only for that moment in time it's also as the company evolves and, and develops that you're going to have to still comply with those rules um, and you know some of the other things i think when you're thinking about jurisdiction as a, as a founder it's it's making sure that the the country or the jurisdiction which you are incorporating in is Ideally, well, there's, you know, there's various factors which need to be considered depending on where the company is and things, but ideally it's an area where there are advisors who are sophisticated if you're going down the startup route um, and venture funding route, which is sophisticated with, with acting with those companies. So that's why the UK does very, very well because it has a very um, buoyant startup market and you know a lot of well-known um, firms there who are experienced in dealing with like financings and startup needs and the law is generally, you know, pretty kind of commercial and, and well-established and you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of kind of like body of work, which has kind of helped really, really establish it. And then similar in the US, I think, you know, if you're if with the US, again, you know, fantastic system of, of advisors and people who can and help there. So they're probably the two which we see the most. I mean, we're obviously based in the UK, so we're, we're probably like slightly um, biased in that sense. Um, but then, you know, incorporating in, in other areas of Europe, totally possible but i think you just need to be aware that that some of the decisions and it might be that there's a step after that where the company has to move into one of those jurisdictions probably maybe uk and these and these decisions aren't permanent are they you can you can change it just involves cost and time it just involves cost and time and and, you know and it's it's more yeah i think it's it's easy for us to say sweeping statements like you know jimmy's been a nightmare or something like that but it's you said i did say you said it yeah <laughs> I'm going to be like kind of people are going to think I'm some kind of uh, anti anti Germany, but I'm, I'm definitely not. You know, like uh, the the um, there is there is some things which are case by case. But I'm saying all things being equal, if you have an ability to choose between some of these jurisdictions, things like you know UK, US, they do have advantages um, longer term because it's just they're a little bit more kind of potentially established with their kind of advisor network, and also probably most importantly. What we say to our founders is you want to put yourself in the best possible position to raise the next round of financing. Um, and that it's just one less thing for maybe some of those investors to think about if you're incorporated in an area where they're familiar. So yeah. US well, let's, 
let's um, um, let's let's unpack that a little bit, Tom, because I think on the one hand, certain jurisdictions have a brand, right? Like the Delaware Inc. It's almost a brand, global brand. And you know, one of the things that we want to be mindful of is that different jurisdictions have different benefits to them, right? And and as a founder, it's not a straightforward decision. It's not like Delaware Inc. has the best branding and therefore it's the best choice for me. There are so many other little things that you need to factor in. And and Tom, you covered one of them, which is like the maturity of the legal counsel in that jurisdiction. Another one is some of the processes that you might need to enact as part of staying valid within that jurisdiction. And then the costs associated with that. And then another one is like some of the, the benefits that you're foregoing from maybe staying in a local jurisdiction, such as tax relief, benefits, R&D. And so there's this is a, a, a difficult and decision not to be made from just simply reading a blog post and being like, oh, that sounds great. Let me do that. Absolutely. And I think, you know, just to build on that as well, I think there's this grant financing, which is sometimes specific on, on being corporate or, or, or um, present in one market, which can which can be hugely impactful. So it and there's, you know, there's considerations around employment and where your actual employees are based. You know, there are some companies now actually one in our portfolio, Boundless, which can help with like kind of like mapping some of those situations where you've got internet people based in different international areas in a remote format and then making sure that you're paying them in a, in a kind of compliant manner. But I, I think that it is a case by case thing. You're exactly right, Carla. So it is, you know, I was just on the phone with a founder of ours who's, who's based, um, is basically corporate UK, but like keeping, keeping a, a large proportion of the company in, in Northern Ireland. And, um, that's for, for reasons around, securing grant funding and you know that that's it there's there's ways to basically structure a company that you can probably benefit from some of that stuff and still put the company in the guess the hopefully least painful legal framework and i think that that's you know the purpose of this conversation really is just to kind of arm founders with more information around that mainly just that it's a question worth considering and thinking about and asking is this the right place to set up my company um, yeah. and, and the answer might well be absolutely, or it might be actually, let's think about this. And we would just say, speak to your lawyers, do the pros and cons. And um, hopefully we've highlighted a few here, um, but there's, you know, it's yeah. a case by case thing. And it, we're not going to cover it maybe in this episode, but maybe for the future we'll cover it. It's like some of the additional benefits of having certain jurisdictions, especially if you're going to hire uh, locally. And sometimes hybrid structures where you have the headquarters in one jurisdiction and you have like an operating company. But don't worry, we're not going to cover it in this episode. Otherwise, we go down the rabbit hole. But we maybe for the future, maybe for the future. So going back to the focus, which is structure. Let's start off with, I mentioned one of them was a category loosely. I'm calling that the commercial contract category. And another one was the equity uh, share purchase category. Maybe walk us through what an equity share purchase is at the at the legal level at the statutory right level like what what does that actually mean versus the commercial contracts yeah so i mean i guess you know where do i, where do I start cards where do i start you know so so much to unpack here but you know i think if, if we think about companies you know they're they're, they're it, it, getting uk law because otherwise this this episode is going to go on for 100 hours <laughs> every single jurisdiction um it, like you know the, the the company which we're usually talking about in terms of the, the kind of corporate entity which can enter into stuff is like a limited company as typical for, for a startup and that startup i'm uh, sorry a limited company has shares and has shareholders um and when it incorporates it might have one share you know over time it might have millions of shares you know like actually it is 
better to have more shares, but probably another episode. Um, and the, the idea here is that when we're talking about investing in a company, like someone, an investor is obviously in a basic sense, putting money into this company and giving the company money and in exchange getting shares. And that's like that's the kind of basic crux of what's happening there. That's that kind of exchange. And that's, where you, and that's where you call it, you know, an equity round because they're getting kind of equity shares in the, in the company. And the interesting thing about that is that that creates, you know, a, a few things in, in terms of once that individual becomes a shareholder, as Carl says, you know, they have certain rights in connection with those shares in that company. And that company is a limited company also has, you know, a rule book by, by which it has to operate as it's kind of separate legal and, um, um, identity which it has. So, you know, it's, it's why it's so important. Again, you know, I guess we can get into the weeds in the, in the detail and, you know, we're going to talk about some other structures as well. But, it, you know, if I just think about if I'm a founder, it's like anything. It's like, you know, it's, it's a major decision when you give someone any kind of rights to your company. But particularly, you know, if you're giving someone shares, that's, you know, there's some things there which are almost beyond your control, which they have a right to once they get those shares. And that's why when you see an equity financing, it's not, you just get shares and you're like, okay, there you go. There's your, there's your 10 shares. There's your hundred shares, Mr. Investor. It's like, okay, here's your shares. And not only these rights, which you have as kind of a baseline, but we're going to vary these rights and control these kind of rights in, in a kind of contract. And um, which is usually called something like, you know, a shells agreement or a subscription agreement, and it'll enhance some of those rights. And it'll also kind of control some of those rights. So it's re- the goal with any kind of like legal drafting or, structuring or anything and it's kind of evolved over time and the contracts which you enter into the whole goal is there is just to create certainty it's just to create a ideally a perfect map of if this then that you know like it's okay if this happens then this happens if this happens then then this happens and there's no uncertainty if you just give someone shares there's, there's various ways which you could come to a resolution around what happens in certain circumstances, but it wouldn't be very clear. And that's why you have more documentation at, at these kind of financing rounds to, to create that certainty. So that's, you know, that's, that's what the law is basically there to do. It's to, it's to help people. Maybe you can just give a concrete example of like a statutory right that people would have not expected. Um, explicitly unless it's explicitly stated i have one in mind but but maybe you have one that wait, wait, I'll, I'll let you go if you want cars oh man no i might get it wrong that's why i'm i'm embarrassed to go first right no i think so no I, I, I can jump pro-ratas. in let's talk about pro ratas yeah yeah no no pro is an interesting one i think that you know uh, there's there's certain rights that um are enshrined in kind of like the companies act and um, to do with you know obviously companies again we're talking about in the uk so it's quite interesting you know when you see things like when people become directors in a company. So it's very interesting as a, as a founder, you set up this company and then you become a director. Then you have rights which are enshrined in law, which you have to act upon, which are, which are you, privy to you becoming a director in a company. Same with investors who become directors, investor directors. They have these obligations which are put on them in, in law by, by virtue of that position of, of trust because you're acting on behalf of the company and you have to act in the interest of the company and the shareholders because the shareholders are, are, are further removed. So it's it's why it, you know it's something that when you get to the stage of, of issuing shares to outside investors, it's why it's so important to have to have lawyers, to have counsel there who can walk you through this. It's not going to be scared about you know 
all these kind of like massive venture back companies have gone through this process, but it is just, it's just understanding what, what, what you're getting into. And because it, it kind of gets a little bit beyond what you might see on, on, a, on a piece of paper or a share certificate. The share certificate itself is like, you know, one side, but the rights which come with that are, are much, are much greater. And some of those aren't, aren't immediately um, obvious. Yeah, the, the reason why I had brought up the, the pro rata one is because I, I guess it's just um, assumptions, you know, like do you, maybe to highlight one, another assumption, if, if not that one, then another sort of assumption that people might have made or that is also different than the US, for example. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, pro, pro rata is an interesting concept because um, it's one which is definitely close to our hearts as, as early stage venture investors. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's the right that once you have shares in a company, if that company goes on to issue more shares, which would dilute you. So, you know, if, if you'd had 100 shares and that person had 10 of those and then they go on to issue some more shares, they would obviously be diluted. They have the right to be able to invest more money to receive more shares to kind of protect their shareholding. Um, and it's something that, you know, I, I wrote a blog post about this. It's something that investors fight hard for to, to keep a hold of their pro rata right in the venture community because we're in the interests of, you know, once a company of ours starts to emerge as a winner, it's important that we're able to continue to follow on that company so that we can maximize the gains that we, that we can get as investors. So it's and, and that right in UK law to to kind of do your pro rata, do your kind of, um, is, is enshrined in, 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 in the Companies Act. And interestingly, it's often kind of disapplied and in commercial senses, it is something that is, is fought over and you can't just sit back and, in practice rely on that it's just like okay i'm gonna get my prior every single time doesn't work like that but the starting point is that you know that has been put in place basically to avoid the situation of you know people just investing in something and they get completely washed yeah. out when I, I picked on that one i think i picked on that one as a good as a good starting point to highlight how yeah you do need a lawyer to help you navigate through That's what true. those what those uh, shareholder agreements are going to look like, because there's some things that are are not even explicitly have to be written in that they're already enshrined, as you said, within the local jurisdiction. And so it, the, the lawyer is going to help you navigate that. Um, and as we talk about, I'm conscious that the more we talk about equity share purchases and all these things that we're flagging, it sounds like the worst thing ever. Um, and, you know, we're, we're going to briefly talk about commercial contracts, but what are the pros? I mean, what what are the if the good things about it? I mean, I'll I'll kick one off. I mean, in the UK, you get a lot of for for very clear equity share purchases without any additional preferences or anything like that. One of the big advantages is that for uh, new investors, they get tax relief. But uh, maybe just walk through some of the advantages of just having a clean equity yeah. share purchase versus a, a commercial contract of any sort. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, this is you know this is a, a kind of point which we we. We think about a lot and we talk to founders a lot. I think, you know, if you're looking at the pros, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there with one, which is this idea, particularly in the UK, where it's it's possible to do it under their kind of convertible structures, but it's cleaner and easier to do to for certain investors who qualify and certain companies which qualify to get things like SEIS and EIS and relief, tax relief. But I think one of the other things, which is uh, a debate, which has been out on kind of Twitter over the years and kind of VC circles, and, you know, we definitely is this idea that you know there's, there's a certain amount of certainty with equity in terms of where everyone stands like you know you you close an equity round and you issue shares to your investors you can have a pretty clear cap table a capitalization table of the company which shows very very clearly how many shares are held by investors 
by founders, you probably have an option pool, and it, it, the valuation of the company is it, therefore fixed. I mean, it's, you know, you can work valuation out one way from the front end, but also from the back end in terms of the pre-money and the post-money. And it's a point in time as a private company where, where you have a very, very clear picture, you know, how much, the, how, how valuable the company is, you know, what that whole equity capitalization structure looks like. And you can say, right, this is our seed round. This is our pre-seed round. This is our series A and this is what it looks like. Whereas, and you know, I don't know if we want to switch to talking about kind of like convertible structures now, but that's one of the criticisms of, of any form of convertible structure that it's not as easy or as clear necessarily to have that very, very clear um, picture of, of, of the equity capitalization table. And really as a founder, fully, fully know exactly the dilution you've taken. Yeah, and I, and I, I was going to rattle off a few other pros yep. for equity. But I think that you you nailed it. I think it comes down to clarity, really, because cl- clarity at the cap table level provides clarity of governance, clarity on the liquidation scenario, clarity for employees and where they stand as a percentage basis. You know, th- like everything is just more clear yeah. um, without the ambiguities that sometimes these commercial contracts have because they're outstanding for a period of time. And and I'm I'm gonna pause the conversation about time to get to a completed uh, equity share purchase. And costs associated with that. I'm going to pause that until we've covered commercial contracts, so we can then compare and contrast between the two. But now, migrating over to commercial contracts, I'm going to throw some of these names out. Feel free to like go whichever order you want to. Yeah. Um, convertible notes, convertible equity, safe, ASA. Um, pick your Eva. Which one do you want to talk about first, Tom? Um, yeah. Do you remember we actually tried to potentially design a totally different name for one once? I think we called it a lightsaber. Oh, yeah. Do you remember? A light, remember? lightsaber, which was a light, simple agreement before equity round. I still think we should bring it back. I think, yeah, I think that's an awesome think, one. Lightsaber. Getting out the lightsaber. Totally anyway, cool. Um, so those, that, you know, they're all in ca- all of these um, descriptions. So whether it's a safe, which stands for a simple agreement for future equity, pretty much pioneered by YC over in the US. Very, very, very common financing tool for US stage companies, pretty much all startups over there seem to do safes up to Series A. Um, then ASA, so I guess we're going to go for kind of jargon busting here, um, advanced subscription agreement, again, like becoming, and it's very, very common in, in the UK, um, convertible note, convertible equity, probably convertible equity very similar to an ASA. So I think, you know, some of the differences, generally, traditionally, kind of a convertible note would, would probably fall broadly more within like what people thought of as debt. It's still the intention of all of those instruments is to convert into equity, is to kind of like go basically allow a company to take money today, which in the future at the, at the equity round, which we talked about before, which is probably say this ASA safe convertible note round, whatever it is, is happening now and a company's raising 500,000 for argument's sake, kind of pre-seed round or whatever then the next round they're targeting in 18 months time is going to be two million pounds and that's going to be an equity round these documents these things which are entered into all being equal and there's some things which we'll get to which aren't would convert this equity round into shares so you've got like a contract here which has some rules about how it converts into shares but they take they take it here the company gets all the money and they've got all of these outstanding um little contracts which are pretty straightforward and then at the future point you can go through the whole equity process when you're taking you know, new investment in it, at maybe like a seed round or a series A. And then you can deal with a lot of the issues which we talked about before, 
you know, which are more kind of heavy duty around equity and there's just more terms there at that stage in the future. And this structure here, whilst there are some things which kind of quasi resemble evaluation, you are not fixing evaluation of the company at this point in time when you're going down the kind of safe ASA and, and convertible note kind of routes. And well, maybe maybe that's a good point to talk a little bit about the history of, of these instruments because I think sometimes that helps create the context. So I, you know, I I'm only going to reference my experience with them, you know, from around 2007 onwards, since that's kind of when I started working in venture. But what was interesting about that time was that it was the time of the last financial crisis. And a lot of investors were trying to figure out a way of how to bridge their companies to survive to a next real equity financing. And so part of the debate was, how do you price these companies, right? You're internally pricing these companies. How do you do that? Do you penalize yourself um, or do you give yourself a premium? But then, you know, you kind of offset that by having less ownership in the new round. And so the, the convertible note as a structure has been around for a long, long time. But in venture, it was particularly popular during that period of, of the 2008 crisis was because it was an instrument to bridge that gap. And it resembled, from what I recall from a lot of the ones that I saw during the period, they resembled more of that debt that you mentioned. You know, they had a lot more of the debt-like provisions. So even though there was an expectation that they might convert into equity in the future, there were still a lot of other little elements in there that made it still look like debt. And I think part of the reason why it needed to have that was for it to have the protection as debt in a liquidation scenario. and. The, the things that were included then were things like a dividend or like an interest rate or, um, you know, like a redemption uh, or like a payback period that was relatively short. Like some of those little elements that make up the convertible note, traditional ones, were all in there in like the late two, the 2008 period, right? And from an evolution point of view, what I have seen and, and what we've both seen together is a lot of these commercial contracts have just been effectively a dilution or a evolution of that original starting point into something lighter and more efficient relative to the needs of it. You know, the ASA has been sort of optimized around locking in some form of tax relief for uh, local investors that have some sort of uh, uh, forcibly requiring some sort of equity round within a short period of time. You know, the safe specific to, to YC in, in trying to simplify that process. Convertible equities is sort of a variant of that. But maybe you can walk us through, Tom, some of the things that that maybe founders should consider as you briefly talked about that. that we talked about the clarity of equity, and then you briefly talked about the ambiguity. Now that we've sort of discussed kind of the origin point of, of these commercial contracts to where they are today, maybe some of the, the things that founders should consider for each one of these in their ambiguity and the impact they could have upon conversion. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if, if, we, if we want to get into kind of like the, the terms to look at in terms of uh, these kind of things, I mean, you, you know, you, you talked there about some of the differences between maybe what was traditionally a convertible note and what is an ASA, you know, things like, as you, as you said, like, you know, potentially an interest rate, you, you mentioned around a convertible note being potentially classed as, as like a debt instrument, which means that in a liquidation event, it could get paid out first prior to kind of equity, because that's a, you know, a requirement. Um, in, in, in most jurisdictions. But then in terms of like, I guess, things to think about as a founder, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a few. And again, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of blog posts we've written around this. But, you know, if, if you're looking at most of these instruments, they'll have a few kind of key economic clauses, which are really, really important. 
So because they will impact what this looks like from a dilution perspective when it converts. I mean, like it's important to understand what goes, what could happen when it goes wrong. But mostly with these now with sophisticated investors who are investing in this way, they recognize that this isn't giving them any really enhanced right in a liquidation in, in reality. When there's no money, there's no money. The company's failed. What they're more interested in and what the company should be probably more focused on is what happens when everything goes right and the company and the, the note converts. And usually it converts with some kind of a preferential like treatment to versus if the, if the investor had just invested in that equity round 18 months later, which makes perfect sense because they're getting, they're taking a lot more risk by investing 18 months earlier. Um, so they should be rewarded in that sense. And so usually investors, they look for in these instruments, like a couple of things, often there'll be some kind of evaluation cap, um, which it, it, the, the name is what it, what it says it does. It means that like in the event the company raises a valuation higher than the valuation cap, you would choose the valuation cap to get that person, to get that investor, um, the, that valuation. And so they would get a, you know, a better, a better deal effectively at the, the conversion. And then the, and then the, the second thing is, you know, there's often also a discount. So the discount would mean that in if that future rate raise that if, if it's more preferential or there isn't a cap, they'll at least get a discount to the price per share at that stage. So, so as a founder, when you're going down that route, you're, you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, this is great because this isn't fixing evaluation now. It's potentially something which is a quicker process to, to get um, convertible notes done and you can do them unilaterally. So you can go to one investor and you can get like, you know, it could be like five or six page piece of um, a document and get that signed as, as, as a kind of commitment into the round. And then you can close, you know, multiple of them generally on the same terms. And, but you, but the challenge there is obviously understanding exactly what it looks like from your cap table because you haven't issued shares. So you've got, so what you probably want to do is create like a kind of a ASA holder or note holder or safe holder kind of register almost like internally, this is what I think founders should do, which says, okay, this investor invested this much and these are the terms and this is the cap, this is the discount. And then you can, as a founder, start to get a sense of what this would look like in terms of dilution. If everything goes well, and in reality, they probably all invest, convert at this cap. Um, so there, you know, some of the things, I guess, to, to think about when you're considering. And that's, and that's what we were talking about earlier with regards to the ambiguity, right? Because like, if you have a discount and you have a premium on the valuation that could potentially be where you cap the, the, the commercial contract, you have this ambiguous ownership state because you don't know what the conversion event will be. So you don't know exactly how much people own. Yes, you can kind of guess and you can kind of take a good punt, but at the end of the day, that's kind of the ambiguity that we were talking about. And and I think that that's partially the reason why, um, for those of you that haven't heard episode one of, of Legal Hour with Tom and Carlos, is um, that we talked about agreeing to commercial terms first, because one of the things that you can do is you can negotiate what something should look like commercially for you in terms of round size, in terms of rough valuation. And you can then perhaps move that into a variety of different structures. And maybe Tom, you can touch a little bit upon like, for example, how you can commercially agree on something and then adapt it for um, one of these commercial contracts because you want to move faster, but with the intention that in six months, you're going to make it into an equity round anyway. Just maybe walk us through that, because just in case anyone's confused as to why we prioritize commercial contracts first rather than structure first. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think that, I guess it's like, it's like with anything, right? When, you, when you're kind of striking some kind of a commercial deal, you're trying to understand what people want to get out of it. Um, 
and then you negotiate to some degree and then you agree on you know headline terms and and that's where you know term sheet often comes in you know the phrase term sheet because that will agree these kind of like headline terms and often you know the, the structure of that will be agreed at that point but there are you know there's this blended structures you can do there's all sorts of things which you can you can almost manipulate these things to, to suit what is the best thing for the company so you know an, an example of that might be you might have a, a need to get cash in quickly and so a, a convertible structure might be more suited um, and the company might be very early and you might think actually it's going to be quite cost of ineffective for me to go down a full equity route and instruct you know legal counsel in a detailed way but you might then meet investors who are like actually really want it to be an equity round we're willing to invest a lot more money to be able to do that maybe it's because there are a lot of angel investors and they're going to get tax relief or maybe it's because there's just a huge amount of interest in the company that doesn't mean that you can't very shortly after entering into this convertible note open up an equity round and then it might be more appropriate at that time where there's more capital there there's more ability to be able to like cover costs of bringing on more kind of sophisticated advisors and spending longer time doing it that you you can you can do that so you can kind of like all again you know the purpose of this conversation the purpose of the content we put out there the purpose of the the conversations we have with founders are just to kind of arm founders with more information so that they can make the most informed decisions and no one should be afraid of any of these structures they're all very well like trodden paths that other founders have gone down and there are all tools from which to to use but i think that the the main thing you know while saying you could do lots of these different things and you can structure things in different ways i do think it's it's optimizing for a, a couple of things in my view one usually speed i think that there's there's very few founders i meet who don't want to get rounds closed quickly i think that's you know it's always as quickly as possible um so i think that's an important consideration with, with when thinking through how you're going to structure your round as a founder so you can get money in the bank close it out and, and just get it done and get on with the stuff which you meant to be doing which is obviously building a fantastic company then I think, and we touched on this before, like simplicity. I do think that it goes with speed. I think that the, the simpler the structure, the clearer, the easier it is for you as founders to understand and the easier it is to explain to other investors. And therefore it goes to the kind of like speed of being able to close. And, and, and then I think, you know, simplicity and then kind of this clarity point as well. I think, you know, having a clear idea of where you are at this point in time, I think everything with startups is kind of like milestone based and thinking in different chunks of time. When you're at this kind of like very very early stage and you're raising your first round you want to just draw a ring around that and say this is this moment in time this is whether it's this is exactly how much the company's worth or whether this is how much we raised on convertible notes at this cap whatever it is that's your round and it's done and it's fixed in a period of time you can then go back you know to building to selling to generating revenue to, to doing whatever you're doing whatever like and in terms of building the company then when you go out to raise again it's a new, it's a new process. It's a new structure. It's a new way of like fundraising, and 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 you know a different structure might be suitable for that time. And there might be kind of shades of gray in between, where you know things like at the moment, you know, we're obviously going through an extraordinary kind of economic um, situation, um, and you know things like the future fund have come out, which are providing an, another structure, which is, is great for certain companies who might want to bridge financing in between. You know, the traditional use of, of convertible notes. But again, I think you know if you can if you can optimize around those those few areas of like speed and, and simplicity and kind of like certainty, then I think you, you won't go far wrong. Yeah, and I, I think that brings me to the final point, which is time and cost. 
Mm-hmm. And you just mentioned speed and simplicity and speed and simplicity usually have an impact on time and cost. So rank them most, most uh, cheapest to most expensive on the basis of time and cost. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely been some movement in this over the years, you know, over the like six or seven years I've been in, in venture kind of investing. It. But still, I think, you know, it, it, it's, it rings true that for the majority of time, some kind of advanced subscription, safe, convertible note, whatever on that kind of contractual relationship rather than issuing shares is generally a little bit more straightforward and therefore less paperwork involved and quicker. Um, and, you know, that's why about five, four or five years ago, Seacamp, we, we moved actually to, to doing all of our pre-seed deals on, on kind of convertible instruments versus we used to do on equity. And the reason why is because of some of the things we talked about before. When you issue shares, you go down an equity round route. There's just a few more moving parts. There's a few more documents. There's more pe- more more things for your legal team to kind of walk the founders through and to explain and to potentially negotiate. Um, and because that takes longer, generally that comes with a higher cost because you know most or it just even it just added complexity adds adds cost. So that's the that kind of the. The short answer, the the kind of longer answer is there's been a lot of movement now in, in, in the equity rounds, and I think that if you know if you, if you have a, a group of investors who know what they're doing is sophisticated in that market, and a you know either lawyers or even some of the platforms which are emerging now, such as Seed Legals, where we're also an, an investor, then you can get equity rounds done very quickly as well now. Um, I, I just think that... With the benefit of the clarity. With the benefit of the clarity. I think the, the challenge with the equity round is I still think you know, there, is, there is complexity. There is more complexity. I think it, it just in terms of the rights and the obligations which exist. And so that's why traditionally, that's, I mean, it's kind of why, you know, and we went through this before, in the US, that market has, has revolved at the earlier stages around you know, doing these kind of like safe agreements or, or some kind of convertible note because some of this stuff is just better dealt with when there's slightly more money at stake and you know, slightly more kind of fee coverage and, and, and a bit more time being able to be taken. Um, but, you know, I think there's, you know, it's like anything. It's like anything when it comes to uh, considering legal things or um, structuring or any of these like kind of hairier, less sexy topics in many ways. There's, there's, no, there's no hard and fast rule. You know, there's, there, is, um, there, are, there are various different ways to do it and there are kind of pros and cons of both. Um, and, and, and so, you know, there's, there's, there has to be kind of almost a, a case by case decision. Yeah. Well, with that guys, uh, want to wrap up just by simply saying, uh, even though you've heard the pros and cons of each, you know, we just wrapped up kind of talking about time and money and it makes it sound like the commercial contracts are the best. No, take advice from a qualified lawyer in your local jurisdiction to figure out what's the best one for you. Um, we thank you for joining. Hopefully you got a lot out of this. If you did, please share it with somebody else that you think would benefit and stay tuned because we're going to definitely do episode three where we're going to cover some of the nuances around uh, the ESOP and shareholder options and having employees get grants and then founder shares and things like those. Thanks for joining, Tom. Yeah, great, to, great to be here. Looking forward to episode three already. Excellent. All right, guys. See you later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.